The deep end can exist on a Thursday? You bet it can. And if you are here, I'm so glad. Uh, by the way, what is this world coming to? I was in Guatemala for a week and everything seems to be upside down. Left is right, right is left, up is down, blah, blah, blah. I needed to get back to you guys on the deep end. I couldn't let my deep enders down because next Tuesday we're not going to have the deep end, unfortunately. So here we are. Anti-Semitism is on the rise in the nation. We have to discuss this. Google is a dumpster fire and they want to shape your philosophy of life. And then we get to David and the problem of apathetic parenting. This is your favorite night of the week, two nights later. Welcome to The Deep End with Tim Hatch. I am beloved, the man they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John I slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to The Deep End with Tim Hatch. The Deep End. Yes, thank you. And welcome in, everybody, to The Deep End, episode 25 of season four. And I hope that you are here tonight with us, even if it's on a Thursday. I hope you're that flexible that 48 hours late does not bother you for The Deep End. And I hope you're also flexible enough to do this for me. Get over to youtube.com slash The Deep End TV and like the video and subscribe and hit that notification bell so that you always get notified as to where we are. So my wife and I, we were in Guatemala. I got some Guatemala swag on me. I got this cross from Guatemala. I got a new bracelet. All my, all my jewelry is from Guatemala. I love Guatemala. And my wife picked me up this on the streets of uh, Antigua. I just love it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Let's put that right there. All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Back to YouTube.com slash The Deep End TV. Now, no matter where you are watching The Deep End from, no matter where you're watching it from, Facebook, uh, hearing it on the radio, listening to it on your podcast app, please, please do me this, this solid right here. Go to youtube.com slash The Deep End TV and click the subscribe button. Uh, click the uh, little like button. Click the notification bell. That way you always know on your phone, oh, The Deep End is live and I can watch and learn. Every week we go into the news, we go into the Bible, and we discuss what's going on in the world. And I had to get back to the deep end, even if it's late, because of all the things that are going nutso in our world. I think you can agree. And I got a lot to talk about, and then we got a lot to read in the scriptures. And so I hope you stay for the whole episode. It's going to be really good. I really think so. Let's get into deep end news. Deep end news. The news you choose if you could choose news. Last week, we talked about that the masks were theater. The masks were theater. There's great debate, even though uh, Lord Fauci kept saying... Masks are not theater? Yeah, even though he kept talking about how... Yes, science! ...was to blame for the fact that we had to wear masks and two masks and three masks until the day we die. And even seasonally, and maybe even until next Mother's Day. We talked about this last week. This... This article I found on townhall.com, this, this was great. You got you to check this out uh, here on the deep end. News. This is why you come, because I'll share with you the news that you choose if you could choose news, okay? Masks did not slow COVID spread, new study finds. A study uh, from Tuesday, so Tuesday was two days ago, from the University of Louisville has challenged through scientific study what has been the prevailing belief that mask mandates are necessary to slow the spread of the Wuhan coronavirus. This is straight out of the article. The study notes that 80% of the U.S. mandated masks, 80% of the U.S. states mandated masks during the COVID-19 pandemic, while mandates increased, or I'm sorry, induced greater mask compliance 
This is straight out of the uh, study. They did not predict lower growth rates when community spread was low or high. So no matter how fast it was spreading, whether it was a seasonally high spread season or a seasonally low spread season, masks did not predict, wearing masks did not predict lower growth rates uh, uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic. Among other things, this is right out of the article here on townhall.com. Among other things, the study conducted using data from the CDC covering multiple seasons reports that mask mandates and their use are not associated with lower SARS-CoV-2 spread among U.S. states. Uh, no, duh. We have been talking about this ad nauseum here on the deep end. Right out of the article, this quote, our findings do not support the hypothesis that SARS-CoV-2 transmission rates decrease with greater public mask use, notes the University of Louisville report. Researchers stated, researchers stated that masks may promote social cohesion as rallying symbols during a pandemic... In other words, masks are not theater. Yes, they are. <laughs> it is about social cohesion. It is about the world being shaped by a certain few people in powerful positions like we talked about last week. Okay. And then it says this. There are risks associated with wearing a mask. You think? Here's the risks listed from the study. Prolonged mask use that is more than four hours per day promotes facial alkalinization. That means you have a greater risk of eczema dryness of skin, et cetera, et cetera. And inadvertently encourages dehydration because you're not going to drink as much, which in turn can enhance barrier breakdown and bacterial infection risks. British clinicians have reported masks to increase headaches and sweating and decrease cognitive position, precision. Sorry, By obscuring nonverbal communication, masks interfere with social learning in children. Likewise, masks can distort verbal speech and remove visual cues to the detriment of individuals with hearing loss. Clear face shields can improve visual integration, but there is a corresponding loss of sound quality. So ladies and gentlemen, it has been problematic for all of us to put these stupid masks on our face and the science yes science is out there to prove that what we have been saying to you for a year, okay, is now scientifically proven. I wonder if we're going to listen to the science now that the science is saying the masks are stupid. When I opened my church, uh, May 24th, we were allowed to open. We opened as soon as possible, by the way. We were not going to be one of these uh, weak-willed churches who stayed closed until kingdom come because we were worried about the flu. Uh, no, we opened up as soon as possible. And I know, you know, when I get into this conversation, even some deep enders, they don't like me talking about this. But I am here to tell you the truth. That's what I'm here to do, to tell you the truth, okay? Anyway, opened the church, and what I did, I was so excited to have church again. It had been 12 weeks without it. I, I told the media team, hey, do a light show and play the final countdown by Europe. And then I ran around the building, <laughs> and I got up on the stage, and I took a mask, and I threw it into the trash, and I threw a Corona beer into the trash, which that actually upset a couple of believers, not because they're teetotalers, but because they like Corona beer. Anyway, um, this, it, it upset a couple of people that I threw the mask in the trash because they were scientists. And I know actually a couple of them left the church because they were scientists. And it's just amazing how the science, like we talked about last week, is never settled. It's never settled. It's not settled. The science is not settled. You know, sometimes you just got to give it one week. One week later. And you're going to find out that the masks are actually very good. Maybe my, maybe my next week is going to be masks are necessary. And then a week later, masks are unnecessary. <laughs> the science is never settled. And here's what I'm trying to tell you. Why do I bring this up? Because it's going to lead to another discussion. You are being programmed. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I tell you this 
with as much care and compassion and love for you as I can. You are being programmed by a certain select few of powerful people in the world who want to shape you into what they want you to be. And as a Christian, I said this last week, we have a biblical obligation. Okay, actually, no, such a good point. I'm going to put it up on the screen. We have a biblical obligation to weigh everything we hear, and we must rely on the Spirit to give us wisdom and clarity and never, ever just blindly follow the science. Got that? We have a biblical obligation to do this. You say, why do I have a biblical obligation? Where is that in the Bible? Okay, I'll show you where it is. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let me unpack this for you for a moment because we need to understand something. Science has become a religious institution. It has become a religion into unto itself. There is a prophet of science who's starting to wake up to this. His name is Bill Maher, and we have discussed that at nauseum on the deep end as well. He's starting to wake up to the fact that science and scientific thought have become just as ridiculous as the religions he used to mock. And when science becomes a religion, it's un- unbelievably the only religion that you can't question. And now I know why the spiritual enemy wanted so badly to divide science and religion. You see, it wasn't originally divided. Actually, science was born out of the Anglican Church. Look it up. In the 1600s, some of the greatest theologians were also scientists even before them. Religion and science went hand in hand. In fact, as one of my favorite Jewish rabbis, Jonathan Sachs, used to say, and I love this quote, science explains what is, religion explains what it's for. Science explains what is, religion explains what it's for. Love that guy, may he rest in peace. But nonetheless, um, so science and religion, the enemy had to divide them, make them mortal enemies of each other. And we have a whole like three or four generations in, our, in, in the West uh, who were raised to believe that science and religion were incompatible. And the reason now was not just to uh, undermine religious belief and Christian faith, it was also to... Um, elevate science to such a level that it would be the one religion in the world that you could not question, right? You can't question the science because it's science. Oh, we can't question. Even though it's always changing and shifting and we don't even know if butter or margarine are the right thing for you. Like this is how it becomes a tool of propaganda. When you create a religion that is unquestioned, just listen to us. Why? Because we are scientists. And so this is how you program an entire populace, how you program entire generations uh, with, with prophets of doom talking about fourth waves and uh, glo- global climate change and uh, what else is going to happen if we don't raise your taxes to pay for more governmental institutions to control your life. We can't trust you to make your own decisions anymore, so we have to run your life. And there are prophets out there more than willing to continue to make this the common theme of the day to the expense, at the expense of your and my rights. We must question everything we hear. We must question it. Let us Christians be the doubters, friends. Let us Christians be the skeptics for once, right? They've been skeptical of our faith for 5,000 years. Let's be the skeptics of their faith. And that's why you come to the deep end, am I right? That's why you come here so that we can talk about what's true and what's not. And we can get, it, we can get the record straight and, and, and learn how to read culture. So you're being programmed. You're being programmed. And the programmers are three big prophets, three, 
three main prophets. In the Old Testament, it was Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Well, in the new age of religious faith, the three prophets are Facebook, Google, and Twitter. Now, I realize I'm on one of the products of Google, so please, if I get canceled or removed or deplatformed, um, which I don't think I will. I don't have that many subscribers. Almost 1,000, though. But anyway, uh, just hear me out before I do get deplatformed. Uh, Facebook, Google, and Twitter are trying to pastor you. They are trying to pastor you. They are trying to program you into the mold of the religion of selective science, the science that will mold you into the person that they want you to be. I want to give you an example, and I'm going to get around about to a point here. So follow me with the Deep End News, the cultural conversation today on the Deep End. Uh, from the New York Post, this came out May 24th this week. Uh, 17,000 people tweet, Hitler was right, end quote, quote, Hitler was right, end quote. And big tech barely reacts. Big tech, Facebook, Twitter, Google. So this article talks about Meghan McCain was, uh, she had done something unthinkable and she called out anti-Semitism on The View. And because of that, the hashtag fire Meghan McCain trended on Twitter. And then the Twitter sphere, which, you know, by the way, Twitter is, I'm getting more and more exhausted of Twitter because it is a dumpster fire. It is literally the worst of humanity on display as people attack people for every single thing. Well, fire Meghan McCain, that hashtag went and morphed into several other hashtags, one of which was Hitler was right. Hitler was right. These are the same people who called Donald Trump Hitler and are now saying Hitler was right. 17,000 times that quote was on Twitter, Google, Facebook, whatever, and nothing was done. Nothing was done. Now, scientific study (laughs) has actually produced results that show Extremist hashtags and slogans on social media are predictors of real-world violence. So guess what happened this past week, two weeks? Anti-Jewish violence in major cities around the world and especially even in America. Watch out for this, friends. This is a tragedy waiting to happen for our society. More hashtags like uh, hashtag COVID-1948, which is referencing when Israel became a state, uh, trended on Twitter in several countries, including the United States. And it was often accompanied by nakedly anti-Jewish content. You know, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, the, um, the, 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 the big tech profits do nothing. They do nothing about this. They just sit silent because after all, now it's free speech. Now it's free speech. When we're talking about anti-Semitism, it's free speech, you know, because people have to express themselves. But when, you know, uh, when Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate periods were going on, uh, they made sure that they amped up the rhetoric on social media and big tech to make sure that we stood against such forms of hatred. But Jewish hate gets what? Second fiddle attempts, second rate attempts at making sure we stop it. (laughs) And by the way, Twitter banned for life Donald Trump and countless numbers of his supporters while at the same time allowing uh, hatred from people like Iran's supreme leader Iman Saeed al-Khamenei, uh, the Hamas leader Ishmael Hanayeh, and Louis Farrakhan. They're still running around posting on Twitter and is no problem. Uh, 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 there was a CNN correspondent named Adil Raja who, who posted praise of Hitler during this latest Israel-Hamas conflict on Twitter. He lost his job at CNN, but he's still on Twitter. I mean, this is ridiculous. Like, this is insanity. And this is what's happening. The prophets of the new age, religion of science, are shaping you by what you hear. They are eliminating the voices of skepticism, the countervailing voices that want to question the prevailing attitude of the religion of science. And whatever you do, please, 
be aware of this. There's pretty much nothing that you can do except not use Twitter and not use Google. In fact, I don't, I use DuckDuckGo. But you're going to see more and more, these three organizations are aligned to shape you. They wanna pass you, they wanna make you what they want you to be, okay? Uh, I wanna to talk to you just for a moment, just to kind of like bring you through some things. You need to learn about some stuff to be aware of it. Uh, there's such a thing called machine learning fairness. Now this is an operation by Google wherein they, uh, they formatted or formulated or programmed the machines that produce your search results on Google with something called machine learning fairness so that no implicit bias would be uh, part of the result of whatever Google search you do. So you search for something on Google, no implicit bias, no white bias, no black bias, no Asian bias, no whatever bias, right? So, so that way you get unskewed search results and you can find what you're looking for. Now I learned about this through a book by Douglas Murray, a book that you should read called The Madness of Crowds, and he does this chapter called The Impact of Tech. And he talks about Google's attempt at machine learning fairness uh, and what he, what he actually finds out, and you can actually do the, the little study yourself, uh, is that it's not actually unbiased at all. In fact, built into the machine learning fairness programming is implicit bias in Google search results. <laughs> this is this is hilarious. And I'm going to actually do this. I, I, I'm gonna do something new. We're gonna do something on the deep and we're gonna do a live um, Google search. And I just wanna show you, I wanna show you something because this is hilarious to me about how biased Google is with its search results. Okay, so I got my keyboard here to do some searching. And now what I'm gonna do is stay with me for a moment because we're going to, search a couple things, and we're gonna look at the results to show you that Google is programming the search to pass you, to shape you into a certain kind of person. Let's do the search, hmm, straight couple, straight couple, S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T, couple. Now watch, watch the results, are you ready? <laughs> First thing that pops up is a gay couple uh, with a gay flag and uh, another uh, straight couple with a, with a gay flag uh, in their hand and then a couple ugly couples. Um, and then let's just, let's just scroll down because you're gonna love this. Look at the results as we continue down this page. Um, the second result from the search, the text search is gay straight couple images. Gay straight couple images, what the heck is that? Uh, <laughs> Uh, go down a little further and then, oh, the Wikipedia page on homosexuality comes up. Why? I search for straight couple. Why does homosexuality, the Wikipedia page for homosexuality, become the third result? Uh, just search a little bit further down a New York Times article called Our Marriage Looks Straight. We're not. <laughs> That's like the sixth result. Do you see the implicit bias that has been built into the system? Two, two down. Uh, the next one. Uh, to some, this queer couple looks straight. For him, that's okay. I mean, this is, you know what this is? This is bias, friends. This is, <laughs> this is hilarious bias. And this is why, this is how Google pastures you. This is how they pasture you. Now, let's do the opposite. Why don't we search gay couple? Okay, this is hilarious too, watch. Okay. Now, are we gonna find straight couples? Absolutely not. We're gonna find dozens and dozens of happy and well-adjusted and healthy gay couples. And, oh, a vlog from a gay couple. And uh, gay couple ties kiss 
Ty tries every kiss in the world. Another video. Like same-sex relationship, Wikipedia. Why doesn't the straight sex or same or opposite sex relationship, heterosexuality, come up on the Wikipedia the Wikipedia page for heterosexuality come up on that search? Why not? Gay couple says New York restaurant kicked them out. Of course, they're always persecuted. Uh, after decade-long battle, gay couples, 1971 marriage. I mean, we can uh, struggle to adopt. We can just go down the list and it's all positive. It's all, let's make sure that we are promoting the gay agenda. Uh, this is how Google has decided to play the game. Now, I also want to take you to another uh, recent development on Google. Remember, Google runs YouTube. And on YouTube, there is an army uh, channel for the U.S. Army. And they have this ad uh, for the army, and they basically promote uh, a, a girl who was raised by a gay couple. Um, is this well-adjusted soldier who is fighting for us? And uh, the title of the series is Calling. And by the way, uh, there's one demographic that is not represented in that picture. I'll let you figure out which one it is, and. <laughs> You can probably understand why. So they're going to talk about this girl here on the right uh, and her story about being raised by uh, gay moms uh, and how well-adjusted she was and involved in ballet. And then one of her moms gets sick and recovers. And she's standing at the altar watching her moms get married, which means, by the way, that she's brought 16 or 15 in that in that you know cartooned representation of the moment and what does that mean that means that her original mom her biological mom probably divorced her biological dad to marry a woman and uh, that's called adultery but that doesn't matter <laughs> that's just that's just the woman becoming true to herself mom. so on and on it goes Long with women. this campaign to promote how normal and wonderful home. and powerful she is One of my sorority sisters the same-sex couple and, and then she goes into the army no problem there strength. good for her go into the army i have no problem about that I'm u.s army corporal emma malone lord and i answered my calling this is this is the u.s army getting woke that's what that is that's the u.s army getting woke because they want to make sure that you understand that they are for gay people and there's several other uh videos uh in the in the in the playlist to recruit people from non-traditional couples again i have nothing against this person per, uh, personally i have no problem with anybody serving in our military i don't think transgenders should serve in the military i don't think that's healthy i think that they have some serious mental handicaps but nonetheless that's my opinion other civil citizens of this country who don't share my religious beliefs can have a different opinion and we can discuss that. But my point is, is that this is where it's going. We have to make sure that we promote this social justice. This is social justice. This is what, why I have a problem with social justice because this is what it is. It is the deconstruction of the traditional nuclear family so that they can prop up and promote the reconstruction of the American family. So anyway, going on in this um on this issue, I, I just want to show you this. This is the page for that video that we just watched, the YouTube channel page. 1.6 million views, and I just want you to check out the like-dislike ratio. Like, 4.9 thousand as of this morning. Dislike, 119 thousand. And they uh, disabled the comments on the video, which is very uh, new for the U.S. Army 
YouTube channel. They always allow comments, but they decided to turn the comments off for this particular video. Why do you think? <laughs> With 119,000 dislikes, why do you think? Do you know why? Because they're not going to let you voice your opinion. If you don't like that, they're going to stop you from voicing your opinion because this is what they do. This is, this is how wokeism works. There is no questioning wokeism. There is no debating wokeism. There is just accepting wokeism. There is just accepting the social justice prophets of our day, the science, religion of science prophets of our day. And uh, so anyway, they blocked the comments and people are like, well, why are you blocking the comments on this channel, on this particular video? You don't block them on any of your other videos. And, and so they issued a response to this. Now, the response is going to crack you up. This is the response from a spokesperson for the U.S. Army. Uh, a, US Arm, a spokesperson for the Army Enterprise Marketing Office told Army Times that, quote, the comments violated our social media policy and were not aligned with Army values out of respect for the safety and well-being the safety and well-being of our soldiers and their families, we have disabled the comments. Safety and well-being of our soldier? These are soldiers. Excuse me. Soldiers need what? They need to avoid nasty comments on YouTube to, to be safe? This is where we're going as a as a co this is what we need to do. We need to make sure that the, 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 the people who are about to pick up guns and fight our enemies in combat are scared of nasty YouTube comments. <laughs> oh, the wussification of America never ends. It never ends. Ladies and gentlemen, I run a YouTube channel. It's this one. It's the one you should have subscribed to if you haven't already. YouTube.com slash the TV. I get nasty YouTube comments. Do you know what I do? This is a, this is an untold secret about being a YouTuber. You can delete the comments, <laughs> and I delete them all the time. I delete them all the time. Why? Because I'm not scared to say I don't like that comment. Delete. And sometimes I'll let it stay up there for a little bit, and sometimes I'll respond, and then I'll delete it all. So feel free to leave your nastygrams. I don't care. I'll just delete it. But the U.S. Army is unable to. <laughs> to handle nasty comments on YouTube. And these are the people who are going to be fighting for our freedom one day. These are the people who are, going to, who are presently fighting for our freedom. And, and, and so it goes on and on. Do you know why? Because they have to program you. They have to pastor you. They have to push this on you. It's got to be mainstream. We're going to celebrate homosexuality. We're going to celebrate transgenderism. We're going to celebrate sexual deviancy. Even beyond those things. Beyond those things? Oh, yes. LGBTQIA. Well, ladies and gentlemen, get ready for LGBTQIA P, as in polyamorous. <laughs> Somerville, Massachusetts. You know, Massachusetts. I was born in Massachusetts. I pray for you. This from People Magazine, July 20th, July 3rd, 2020. Massachusetts City will now recognize polyamorous relationships. Somerville, Massachusetts, the city council, in the height of a global pandemic, decided that the most important thing to do was to legitimize marriages made up of more than two people. Now, I am old enough to remember, ladies and gentlemen, when we, uh, on the right side, on the conservative side, on the biblical side of marriage, when the whole gay marriage thing was being fought for in uh, the cultural conversation, I remember being mocked 
ridiculed, laughed at, scolded for even suggesting that gay marriage, the acceptance of gay marriage would lead to the acceptance of polyamorous marriage. Mocked, vilified, uh, told I was ridiculous, and anybody who said likewise was told that they were being ridiculous, it would never happen. Well, guess what? It's starting to happen already. That's 2020, the city of Somerville. Uh, one of the councilmen, his name is J.T. Scott, he told the Times this, that he knows of at least two dozen polyamorous households in the city of Somerville of 80,000 residents. Two do- 20, 24 uh, households are polyamorous out of 80,000 residents, and they have to legitimize it. And here's the quote. This is hilarious. Folks live in polyamorous relationships and have forever. Folks live in a polyamorous relationship and have forever. Right now, our laws deny their existence, and that doesn't strike me as the right way to live. The right way to write laws at any level, he said. And then he says, hopefully this gives folks a legal foundation for which to have a discussion. Maybe others will follow our lead. Okay, no one is denying anyone's existence because they think, you know what, let's not celebrate and legitimize polyamorous relationships because we don't know the effect it's going to have on children and families going forward. Like, that's not denying that they exist. If somebody wants to be in a polyamorous relationship, have at it. I don't care. That's your choice. That's not my choice. I don't think it's right. And you probably think it's right. And that's, that's called freedom of uh, religion, freedom of tolerance, all that kind of stuff. But to legitimize it, to celebrate it, to make it the standard of the day, to make it what we are going to promote, this is not a good idea. Soci- societies in the, in the past, in the ancient past, have tried these things out. They did not last. It did not work. So you say, well, that's just one crazy city in Massachusetts, Pastor. I mean, come on. All right. Yeah. All right. Watch this. From the Christian Post the two, two months ago. From the Christian Post two months ago. Massachusetts City becomes second to legally recognize polyamorous relationships. Which city in Massachusetts? Cambridge. And what is in Cambridge? Harvard. Harvard University is about to produce a bunch of people who are going to fight the laws on the books limiting marriage to two people. I guarantee you. Coming to the Supreme Court in Massachusetts very soon, I absolutely guarantee you will be a case of four or five, three, four or five other people in this marriage who feel that their rights have been violated because marriage is restricted to two people. And woe to the cake baker and woe to the flower salesman and woe to the marriage reception hall that doesn't celebrate and promote and work for these weddings as well. And then what's going to happen with all those churches, all those churches, like the United Methodist Church, like the Evangelical Lutheran Church, like the um, Episcopal Church, when this stuff starts to become commonplace, what's going to happen to people like Tony Campolo and other formerly evangelical, biblically solid preachers who are now embracing same-sex marriage? What are they going to say about this one? What I'm saying is that as the culture continues to slide off the cliff, Are there going to be Christian ministers who are going to continue to say, God bless you, we love you, and we accept you? (laughs) This is the problem with wokeism. There will never be an end to it. It will never stop. How do I know it will never stop? Because people are involved, and people are crazy. They are fools, natural-born fools. We're going to get to that in the life of David in just a moment. People are natural-born fools, and they trend towards self-destruction. We are nihilists at our core. Anyway, it's not going to be good. You need to be aware of it. And you need to be diligent in the matters of biblical faith. I I remember when there used to be fun and entertaining versions of polyamorous relationships, like when, you know, three men and a baby come out. Now three men and a baby is a state mandate. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, that's domestic news, and we got to get into Israel because uh, Israel, and I should have talked about this last week, and I'm sorry, but we got to talk about this. And I want to just set the record straight about what what you should believe about this whole Israeli conflict because anti-Semitism is on the rise, and woe to the nation where anti-Semitism is on the rise. I think history has proven time and time again, whether it be Napoleon or Hitler or any or or Spain or any you know foreign nation other than this nation that has turned on the Jews, it has never gone well for them. It has never gone well for them. They are still God's chosen people, God's biological chosen people. So you got this Israel-Hamas conflict. Hamas is a terrorist organization. You got to know that. It's stated in their charter that they want to wipe Israel off into the sea. They want to wipe Israel out, and they will propagandize Christians in America to no end to make sure that they present it like it's this equal fight. Now, they uh, attacked Israel unprovoked a couple weeks ago and led to a bunch of missiles being shot off by both sides. And Christians are confused about this. Christians want to know, well, where do I stand? Where do you, I've, asked, I've been asked by two Christians in my church, where do we stand? And uh, here's, here's what I want to say. And I want to say this as delicately and, delicately and as pastorally as I can. We stand for peace, first and foremost. As Christians, we pray for peace and we pray for the Jewish people to have peace and live at peace. We think that the Jewish people are special people. They are God's people. They are not better than anyone. They're not more significant than anyone, but they are God's chosen people, and they are the people through whom God brought about Jesus Christ, our salvation, right? That's how we get saved through the true Jew, Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we stand for peace. We stand for the peace of Israel. But at the same time, we stand with Israel as supporters based in biblical values. So, there, there's a lot of confusion around this. I, I was raised in a Pentecostal church, which tended to be very Zionist, meaning that we believed that the Israeli government had the right to do whatever it wanted to do, or there somewhere around there. I went to a Presbyterian seminary, which was hands off of Israel. Israel is just another nation now, and we are true Israel. And so I've been through the doctrinal gamut, the doctrinal spectrum on this issue. And I think that some Christians have no clue, and some Christians have probably experienced the same doctrinal gamut that I have. And I want to kind of like help you through this. As Christians, we are peacemakers. We do not instigate war. We do not celebrate war. We understand there are such there are moral war causes, and we pray for those causes to come to a swift and just end, but we do not instigate or pray for or ask for war. We do not want Palestinians mistreated by the Israeli government. We do not want Israel to misrepresent the heart and love of God toward Palestinians. Um, we stand vehemently against all terrorism. I mean, this, is, this should be common sense. That being said, the Jewish people are still God's biological people, and we are commanded to pray for their peace and security and support them. That being said, we love and support Israel by also holding Israel account for ways that it acts counter to the heart and mind of Christ. We do not and should not support militant overtaking of homes and neighborhoods. We should not support the relocation of Palestinians who have been living there for years, decades, generations. We should not support unfettered Zionism is what I'm saying. Even Jesus himself challenged and countered the religious leaders of Israel in his day. That's what got him crucified. He didn't get crucified because he was nice. He got crucified because he held up his hand against the cultural and legal and uh, legislative leaders of his nation. He challenged the Pharisees on the right. He challenged the Sadducees on the left. And he said, listen, you're both missing it. This is the truth. 
And the, fat, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came together, became friends to put him to death. By the way, so did Pilate and so did Herod. Herod, the Jewish legislative leader, Pilate, the Roman pure, uh, procreator of, 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 of Judea, became friends. They were former enemies. They became friends because of Jesus. They want to put Jesus to death. And today, I think that in the Christian church, there's still this trend to like side with the Pharisees, all for, all for Israel, unfettered rights, no matter what, they have the right to do whatever they want, or to side with their enemies, which watch out for that one. That one's worse. I really do believe that one's worse. Um, I think that we have to pray for their peace and we have to pray that they uphold their biblical values because their biblical values are our biblical values. We believe the land belongs to the Jews. God gave it to them. But at the same time, we believe that not all Israel is Israel. Romans chapter 9 says that. Romans chapter 10, 11. Read those chapters. Who is real Israel? Those who put their faith in Christ. Does God have a plan for the Jews at the end time? An argument could be made from Scripture that, yes, he does. But we are not the people who take a side to say, no, we're, we're going to be way over here on this spectrum and say Israel has the right to do whatever it wants because if, if we bless them, then, then God will bless us. No, that's a misinterpretation of Genesis 12. We, we should stand with Israel, stand for their rights, stand for their safety and security and peace, but also be willing to stand, uh, speak up for justice and righteousness when they act inappropriately. Now, I'm not saying that they are. I am saying, though, don't blindly just follow whatever you're hearing on the news, because oh, that's what you were raised with. In other words, don't let the prophets of today shape you into what they want you to believe. The problem with Hamas is that they are a politically propagandist machine. They put children to buildings that Israel alarms that they're going. So Israel will tell Hamas leaders and, and, and Palestinians who live in terrorist building, terrorist occupied buildings, we're going to bomb the building. They provoked us, they attacked us, we're going to attack you back, we're going to take out this building. So they'll call the building, this is true, they'll call the building, all the people who live there, and say, get out, we're going to bomb the building. Sometimes they'll drop a knock bomb, which means it hits the top of the building and sends a signal to say, get out, we're about to bomb this building. And they'll give hours, even a day, for people to get out of the building so that nobody has to suffer a casualty. And it's just for them to retaliate against the unprovoked attack of the Hamas leadership that happened in the first place. But this is not told. And so what the Hamas leaders do is they put children and families into the buildings and they don't let them out through propaganda of their own to say, no, you got to fight and, and die for this. This is, this is going to show how evil the Jews, the Jews are. And you got to be aware that this is what's happening. This is the propaganda machine that is happening in our, uh, on our television sets and especially on Twitter, especially on Twitter. Man, what a stinking hot mess. Unbelievable. My point though is this. At the end of the day, We've got to do our own research. And as Christians, it is our job absolutely to support peace above all things and peace for Israel and prosperity for Israel. They are still God's biologically chosen people. But I want to say it all, all that to say this, blind allegiance to any government is a disaster for the testimony of the church. Blind allegiance to any government or any side of government is a disaster for the testimony of the church. Okay, this is, this is what Trumpism did to the church. It lost a lot of young people because we blindly followed, many Christians blindly followed Trump as the savior of this country. He was, a, he was a businessman who became a politician, and I think he did a pretty good job, but I am not going to name him savior. Okay, we've got to get this down, friend. For more on this discussion, I encourage you to read this article in the Christian Post called, quote, as a Palestinian Christian raised in an Israel-loving church, how I see this latest conflict. Read that article. Very helpful. 
he himself saw with his own eyes the displacement of Palestinians from uh, the Jewish settlements. And, you know, he, he unpacks it in a way that I had never heard before. I would encourage you to read that article as he speaks from authority. I don't speak from personal authority. I speak from biblical authority. I'm only going to tell you what the Bible says. We've got to pray for peace. And we've got to stand, obviously, with Israel, but not blindly. That's where I fall. I hope that helps you. I don't know if you were looking for that, but I just wanted to share it with you and discuss it here on the deep end. I think it's it's important that we do. Anyway, that's the news. It was long, wasn't it? Oh my gosh, 42 minutes. Are you still with me? Because we're going to get into the life of David. Thanks for staying. The life of David. And of course, before we get into the life of David, would you do me a favor? Would you support the deep end at the deep TV slash give or the cash tag, the deep end TV or paypal.me slash the deep end TV. And as much as this is a dumpster fire, would you follow me on Twitter? <laughs> uh, Tim Hatch live or Instagram, Tim Hatch live. I love to connect with you on those social media platforms as well. All right. We're in the series of messages here, a Bible study called the life of David. And I'm going to talk about the sins of the father, the sins of the father in second Samuel 13. 2 Samuel 13. Uh, we are going to discuss the fact that uh, the sins of David are going to cost him in the long run. And we have to understand something about sin. And this is the, this is the, um, the theological tension that pastors live in. Okay, Pastors live in a theological tension about a lot of things. <laughs> It's what makes it difficult to be a biblical expositor because sometimes it looks like we're counter, I'm sorry, So it looks like we are um, uh, countering our own arguments. We're, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Con- conflicting with our own arguments, right? Contradicting, there we go. Contradicting our own arguments. <laughs> so many things in my mind, I forget the words. Um, but we live in tensions. We live in tensions, okay? God is one and God is one in three persons. So is he three or is he one? Yes. God is sovereign, but man is responsible for sins. So does God sovereignly save or is man responsible to repent? Yes. Uh, Jesus is God. Uh, Jesus is man. Is he fully God or is he fully man? Yes. Like these are the tensions that, that biblical expositors, this is why biblical exposition is not for the faint of heart. You have to learn to embrace the tensions. Well, here's another tension and it, and it has to do with sin. Uh, there are two presentations of biblical truth that we have to live with and we have to live in. Warning of consequences, which I will put over here on the left. In other words, a preacher has to get up there and say, watch out or this will happen to you. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't uh, uh, covet your neighbor's wife, dog, car, whatever, right? We have to warn. And the stories of the Old Testament are there for our warning. But at the same time, we have to go on to the other side and say, but there's hope for healing and redemption. And that God is into both of these, like he's into both of these tensions and he presents both of these tensions throughout the scriptural narrative. If we slide way over here to the warnings and uh, consequences side, we become legalistic. We become demonstratively judgmental. We become holier than thou. All people hear about is what we are against. Shame on you and watch out or you're going to. And you got to be careful about that because that's, that's a, a tension that too many Christians, they flow into that side and they become insufferable. They become hypocrites and bigots and people don't like them because they are just always angry with sin in the world. At the same time, if we slide over here, way over here, God's going to use us, God's going to use us, we become relativists. 
not legalists, but relativists. We become soft on sin. We become easygoing and we start to embrace, you know, the cultural mandates for how we should live and believe. There's a tension to be had. There's a balance, my friends. We've got to stay right here in the center, okay? We've got to stay right here in the center and say, it can be both and. When it comes to sin, there are consequences. And when it comes to sin, there is a possibility for God's healing and God's redemptive work in and through that sin. This is so uh, well presented in the life of David because David commits this horrible sin, sleeps with Bathsheba, knows she's married to one of his military commanders, conspires to get him killed, and then takes her to be his wife. And then the child that they bear, it dies. We talked about that last week. And then the very next passage, 2 Samuel 12, 24, he comforts his wife. He has sex with her again, Bathsheba. Like now she's Bathsheba, not the wife of Uriah. They have a son. They call him Solomon. Solomon's going to be the greatest king that ever lived. And, and, and then the next few verses, Joab fights the Ammonites and he takes the city. And he tells David, and David comes, and he takes the crown. And he, and he goes in, and he, and he fights against Rabbah, and he, and he takes it. And he took that crown of the king from his head, and he put it on his head. And he took the spoil from the city, a great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, set them to lay with saws, irons, pickaxe, all that kind of stuff. I mean, this, this is, I'm just skimming, skimming through 2 Samuel 12 to the end of the chapter. And, and, and then it says, then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And it looks like, wow. David's not going to really suffer for the sin that much. Like David's not, David's kind of going to get away with it, isn't it? Like back, back to, back to the, um, uh, back to the, uh, the, 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 the tension, which is we might be tempted to think. So I guess that for David, you know, it's, it's all this, it's all hope for healing. Like no, no problems now. David's never going to have to suffer. I no, forget about these consequences. David has special privileges. Like, like that might be the, temp, the, the, the temptation that we have when it comes to studying this text. But, but here's what you have to do. You, you have to look at the long-range view of what God's going to do and how God is going to leverage the consequences of, our, of David's sin. And it brings me to this point. David repented. David repented. But God was not going to just wipe out the consequences. And the same is true for you. Even when you repent, God is not going to wipe out the consequences. But listen to me carefully. When you see this in other people, when you see a person sin and they repent, can you leave the judging to God? <laughs> I got this quote. I want to put it on. When it comes to the sins in those who repent, let God do the judging. You do the loving. Now, I'm not talking about the world. We don't, we don't judge the world. We judge whether it's right or wrong on certain issues because we're Christians and we live according to the scriptures and not to the world's standards. But we don't call out the world's nonsense and we don't call, call them out personally and say, shame on you, how dare you, just change your views. No, those are non-Christians. We don't expect them to act like Christians. Okay, that's what I try to do on the news anyway. But, but, but here's the thing. We do judge the actions of unrepentant believers. Okay, so when a, when a believer is unrepentant, that's when we can judge. So some Christians say, do not judge. That's, that's what God, Jesus said. No, no, no. We also make judgments about sin in the life of believers. We have to call it out. Paul tells Timothy, rebuke others publicly so that those who watch may learn. He uh, talks about the accusations against elders. got to be two or three witnesses. But if there's two or three witnesses, then you deal with the accusation against the elder. Uh, Jesus said that you've got to um, make a judgment that is spiritual, not unspiritual. And Paul's letters to the Corinthians and to the Galatians and to the... 
Oh, the Ephesians. These are he's calling them out repeatedly to say, look, get this right. You're not repentant here. Change your behavior. But when it is a repentant believer like David, friends, can you learn to let God do the judging and you do the loving? I know, I know it's hard to say, well, how do I know if they've repented? Well, you don't know always. You don't know. You gotta leave it in the hands of God. You gotta let God do the judging because time will tell. <laughs> time will tell. So what happens to David? Shortly after Solomon is born, you know, the chosen son is born, even from the marriage with Bathsheba, who was a marriage of adultery in the first place. You know, all this all this good starts to come from this evil. And then he's getting the city of the Ammonites and it looks like everything's gonna be fine and, and he's increasing in measure even more. Well, that brings me next to the very next passage, the very next narrative, which is about Amnon's lust. Amnon's lust. Amnon is David's second-born son. So let's get into the text in 2 Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Now Amnon is from one marriage. Absalom is from another marriage. Absalom has a sister also from that marriage. And so this is what happens, by the way. This is how the Bible shows you that multiple marriages, polyamorous relationships are a tragedy waiting to happen. This is how it shows you because it shows you what happened to David and his family. Also shows you what happened to Jacob and his many wives and many children. But Amnon starts to lust after Tamar and uh, all hell starts to break loose. He was tormented. Uh, he made himself ill because of, her, because of his sister for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. By the way, I want to say this point. It's never just sex. It's never just sex. This idea that, oh, it's just sex is nonsense because Sex between Amnon and his stepsister Tamar will destroy this family. And how many people could say the same about what sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman have done to them? It's never just sex. Anyway, getting back to the point. Uh, verse, oh, by the way, Leviticus 18.9 talks about the fact that you can't sleep with your sister. You can't sleep with your mother's daughter, your father's daughter. You can't do that. It's out of bounds, right? So Amnon is sick because of that, because of the, the law that says he can't have his sister. Well, Verse three, going on, it says, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, and he's the son of Shimei, David's brother. So this is uh, Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a crafty man, and he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, verse five, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes and sees you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretend to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat, him, eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, this is verse seven, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took the dough, kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Verse nine, and she took the pan and emptied it out in front of him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So, so watch what happens here. He gets alone with her. He First, he obsesses about her. He, gets, he conspires to meet with her. He gets alone with her, sends everybody out of the room. Everybody went out from him. Verse 10, then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. Let me just unpack what's happened so far. This is Amnon's lust. He focused on her, number one. He became tormented and ill because he couldn't stop focusing on her. Number three, he had bad company. He had a bad friend, a cousin, Jonadab, who teaches him how to conspire 
his way into immorality. He conspires, number four, and plans to get her alone. Then he gets alone with her and he gets close to her and has her literally feeding him from her own hand. Where did this happen before? David did this exact same thing with Bathsheba. He looked, he wanted, he conspired, he brought her into his house, he got alone with her, and he slept with her. Even when he knew it was wrong, he still did it. He followed through with it. The same sins that David committed are now being committed against him in his own family. And this is how God deals with our sins sometimes. There are going to be consequences. There is going to be consequences. There's a long-range view. Verse thirteen, uh, verse 11. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took a hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. And she, she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where can I carry my shame? In other words, if I'm no longer a virgin, I'll, I'll be ashamed. As a, a huge disgrace in ancient Israel. As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, sp- speak to the king. He will not withhold me from me. Like, maybe dad could do something about this. Right? It's kind of disturbing, the rest. He would not listen to her, verse 14. And being stronger than she, he violated her, and he laid with her. Uh, exactly what David did to Bathsheba, Amnon, his son, does to his daughter. And God does not always remove the consequences of our sins. And, and that's the big point that we want to first touch on here. <laughs> But we're also going to look at what happens with David, how, how he allows those consequences to get into his head and stop him from being a father. And this is important. And I want to get to this point really quickly. So let me just go through the text. A lot of text. Let me go through it quickly. As soon as the sex is over, verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. <laughs> Think about that. He lusted intolerably for her. The moment he got her, he hated her. Uh, I don't think there's a greater proof text in the Bible for young ladies to save themselves from marriage than this one. Young ladies, do not give yourself sexually to men. I understand they can rape you. I'm not talking about that if you don't have any choice in the matter. I'm talking about when you do have a choice and you give yourself over sexually to these men who are not married to you. Their hearts change after the act. This is a fact. This is a sociological, biological fact. Without marriage underlining that sexual relationship, the man's heart toward you will not be right. Fact. Save yourself. It's never just sex. It's never just sex. It will destroy you socially, emotionally, relationally. If you've made this mistake before, don't keep doing it. God can forgive and wipe you clean and wash you clean and prepare you for your future husband, but don't keep doing it. Repent, turn from it, nonetheless. And then said to her, get up and go. Verse 16, she said to him, no, my brother, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the one that you did to me first, but he would not listen to her. Verse 17, he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence. So he gets rid of her. Verse 20, her brother Absalom said to her, have Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom. Now the brother of Tamar, but also the thirdborn son of David. For some reason, the firstborn son of David, Chilean, is gone. He's dead. I don't know if he died or whatever, but he's gone. Chileab, sorry. Secondborn brother is Amnon. Thirdborn brother is Absalom. Absalom, if he kills Amnon, he is first in line for the throne. That's kind of an interesting little 
factoid about Absalom's situation here. But anyway, he's going to work to conspire to kill Amnon over this situation. But let's continue. Verses 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, period. And then that's it. <laughs> By the way, in some manuscripts, it reads that he was very angry, but he did not want to punish Amnon because he loved him and Amnon was his firstborn son. David doesn't do nothing. That's the problem that we see here in David's life, David's, David's parenting. He doesn't do anything and he just kind of lets it happen and is silent. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he violated his sister Tamar. Two years go by, verse 23, and Absalom had sheep shearers at Belhazor, which is in Ephraim, and Absalom invited the king's sons. Now he's conspiring to kill Amnon. He, this is two years, by the way, two years later. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Let the king and his servants go with your servants. So, but the king said to Absalom, No, my son, not all of us. We will be burdensome to you. But he pressed him. He pressed him. He would not go, but he gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said this in verse 26, if, not, if you're not going to go, dad, let my brother Amnon go with me. Now look at this next text. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? What does that tell you? David knows something's up. David knows. He knows the whole story. He knows that Absalom has hatred for Amnon. He knows that Tamar is living as a desolate woman in Absalom's house. He knows what Amnon did to Tamar, his daughter. And, and he knows that if Amnon goes to Absalom's house, Amnon's dead. Why should he go with you? And Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. You can see what David's going. By the way, David's family is like Jerry Springer. <laughs> anyway, I tell you that the Bible does not have the same nonsense you see in Hollywood and movies. It has not read the Bible. <laughs> Let's go on. Uh, then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark Amnon's heart when he is married with wine. And when I say to you, strike him, then kill him. Don't fear. I've commanded you be strong and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, each mounted his mule and fled. And when they were on their way, verse 30, news came to David. Absalom struck down all the king's son and did not let one of them live. Verse 31, the king arose towards garments, lay on the earth, and all the servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the crafty guy who started this whole mess, Comes and says, no, no, not all of them are dead. Just, uh, can't, just Amnon. Amnon alone is dead. So they're there, king. It's not so bad. Only your firstborn is dead. <laughs> For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Verse 33, now therefore let not the Lord, my Lord, the king, take it so hard so as, to pose, so, as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. Man, Jonadab is a jerk, honestly. Like he's like, he's like, nah, this has been decreed. You know, remember, you know, Absalom had already had this, you know, attitude toward Amnon. He was going to do it. It's just a matter of time, King. Remember, you know, so it's only Amnon. <laughs> Absalom pleased, verse 40, uh, verse 34, and the young man who kept watch lifted up his eyes and looked at behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voices and wept, and the king also and all his servants wept bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Abiathar, king of Geshur. That's, by the way, where his mom's from, Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Okay, that's the text. And I went through it quickly because I just wanted to show you the, the story of what happened and then I want you to see what happens with David. For two years, he ignores what happened to Tamar at the hand of Amnon. For two years, he ignores Absalom's bitter hatred toward Amnon for what he did to Tamar. I mean, it's his own daughter that's raped, and he does nothing. 
And then as Amnon, Absalom conspires to kill Amnon, he does nothing still for two years. And then when Absalom kills Amnon and flees, he does nothing for three years. Here's what David's problem was. Apathy. Apathy. And I want to give a parental guidance message here. Parents, apathy towards sin in your life will lead to apathy towards sin in your own family's life. If you tolerate sin in your life, you will be disabled to tolerate sin in your children's lives. Uh, so let's get into some points. I want to talk about avoiding parental apathy because what David shows here is a couple of things. First, he could not get over his own mistakes sexually with Bathsheba to the extent that he allows it to continue in his own home and does nothing to intervene in the process. And people die and daughters suffer and brothers murder all while David passively watches it happen. And I want to say something to the parents who are watching The Deep End today. There is a militant attack on your children at the hands of this culture that you have got to arm yourself for and you cannot afford to be apathetic over. You are the head of the home. Whether you are a single mom or you are a father and mother, you are the head of your children. You are, the, you are in charge. Don't be apathetic. This culture will swallow your children alive. And if you cannot get over the sins that you have committed in your life, you will allow those sins in your past to hinder your parenting in your present. You have got to let it go. Let the forgiveness of God be enough so that you can parent your children with biblical authority. Avoid parental apathy. Number one, hold fast to a commitment to the assembly. What do I mean by that? Get to church. Hebrews 10.25, don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together. Don't neglect this. You need it. Without it, you're just, you're just fledgling. And, and, and what I see is that COVID-19 has exacerbated this problem. People were barely going to church before COVID. Now it's like half that. Yeah, I read an article today. One time a month is the norm for most Christian families going to church. One time a month? I remember in the old days, we would say, hey, if you eat bread once a week, you'd probably starve, right? Now it's once a month, spiritual bread you're eating. No wonder why families are struggling. No wonder why, no wonder why 43% of millennials say they don't know, don't care, and don't believe in God. 43% is the largest number ever recorded by uh, Barner Research. And it's amazing that this has happened. Because parents today don't give a rip if their kids go to church. They, they want them to go to ballet. They want them to go to football. They want them to go to hockey. I guarantee you that far more parents have gotten their kids back into hockey and sports quicker out of the COVID-19 pandemic than they've gotten them back into church. And there is a serious apathy here at, law, at play in parental authority in the church. And it must be rebuked and called out because it's going to lead to disaster. Do not allow for this in your home. You've got to have a commitment to gathering in the church, being amongst the people of God, Hebrews 10.25. Number two, commitment to discernment of the times. We talked about this in the news. 1 John 4.1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Parents, are you doing that? Parents, are you 
ignorant of the matters at hand in the culture. This is why I do the news section of the deep end, by the way. This is why I do it. So that you don't have that ignorance that many, many parents have. What's going on? What is Google doing? What is the big tech firms? What are they up to? What is happening in the, in the school system? What is happening in the, in the media empire of our nation? Are you aware of it? Are you testing the spirits of the age? Don't just believe every spirit. Don't just listen to the science. Get smarter than this, dear Christian parents. Don't be apathetic. Number three, commitment to self-feeding on God's word. Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You cannot afford to be ignorant of what the Bible says if you're going to be a biblical parent. Take time to grow in God's word. Open it every day. Listen to it. Read it. Absorb it. It doesn't mean you're always going to live it. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect because you do it, but it does mean it's going to fill you with wisdom. When your child comes home from school and the school said this, but, but, but God's word says that, are you going to be able to counter it with biblical wisdom? You will if you feed on God's word. And don't give me the excuse that you can't understand it because that's why we do the Bible on the deep end. And that's, by the way, why you go to church so that you can understand the Bible better. Commitment to feeding yourself on God's word. Number four, a commitment to giving and serving the gospel. In other words, don't just go to church, but show up and serve. Hebrews 13.2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. How do we show hospitality in modern age? We don't just invite people to home. We invite people to our church. Hebrews 13.16, do not neglect to do good, to share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In other words, get busy serving in the church. Put your hand to the plow. Do, don't just be a spectator. Don't just be a, 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 a watcher of the church in action. Be a doer. I was watching that film, The Iron Lady, about Margaret Thatcher last night. I love that film, by the way. And uh, this woman is interviewing. This young girl's asking her questions about all these things that she did, all these great things that Margaret Thatcher did. And she said, you know, I'm so inspired by what you are. And she said, you know what? In my day, it was not about becoming something. It was about doing something. <laughs> and I feel like in the modern church, it's about becoming something instead of doing something. Oh, we just want to become, we want to become, we want to become great. Well, how about do something great? Get your hands dirty in the kingdom work. Give, tithe, serve, surrender your things and your stuff for the message of the gospel. Number five, a commitment to discipline and instruct instruction of your kids. This is Ephesians 6, 4, Proverbs 22:50. Let me share some passages on this. Parents, you have a, a biblical mandate to instruct your kids in the Lord, not just instruct your kids in math and in science and in the disciplines of arithmetic and all those kind of things. No, in the Lord. And if you neglect this responsibility, uh, your kids will grow up to be fools. I want to show you a couple of passages to prove what I'm saying. Uh, Proverbs, uh, I'm sorry. Colossians 3.21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Uh, I don't have it actually on the screen right now, but uh, Ephesians, let me go back. Ephesians uh, 6.4, fathers raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 22.15, check out this verse. Folly is bound up. Folly, what? Is bound up in the heart of a child. In other words, children are fools. They are born fools. We are all natural born fools, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, let me just show you a cross-reference passage for this passage, because this is going to tie together really cool. Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, 
but a wise man listens to advice. If folly, if our children are natural born fools and fools always think they're right, what does that tell you about your child? They always think they're right and they are not. If you're one of these parents that always listens to your children, it's my job to listen to them. It's my job to understand them. It's my job to hear them. No, it's your child. It's your job to discipline them, to, to smack them straight. I don't want to talk about corporal punishment, even though I'm a fan of spankings, not, not anything, not tools, but nonetheless, if you're not disciplining, you're abdicating your responsibility to your children. You're letting them be fools. I am so tired of this generation who says, no, 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 the, the wisdom is from the children. That's not, that's not biblical. The scripture says praise comes from the mouth of children, not, not wisdom. <laughs> but we have this generation of older uh, uh, people who think that wisdom is with the young. That's why Greta Thunberg is a national phenomenon who, cover, who makes the cover of Time magazine. Because we think these kids know what they're doing. They're fools. And, and we despise the aged to our own detriment. We don't listen anymore to those who have lived some years, some decades, and know better. It's our job, Christian parents, to discipline our children. Proverbs 4, 1 to 2. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. In other words, in other words, parents, it's your job to discipline and instruct your kids. You say, oh, pastor, I have a... I have a, a father who's uh, a husband who's useless in this regard. Well, don't tell him that first of all. And if and if he's useless, then you do it. He doesn't have. He doesn't. It's not going to be any better if you do it or he does it. Just somebody teach these kids about Jesus. For heaven's sake, teach them right from wrong. Teach them not to just watch television. Teach them. Don't let them watch garbage. Don't let them watch whatever they want to watch. At the same time, don't be so domineering. And controlling that they are they are squelched, they're stifled. You gotta give them as they grow, you gotta give them some freedom with boundaries. The boundaries have to spread out further and further as they get older and older. I've been through this now. You gotta let them drive, you gotta let them go places, you gotta but you have to know what's going on. You have to watch, you have to guard, you have to protect them without controlling them. It's hard. It's the hardest thing in life. It's what's <laughs> Hardest thing in life is to raise a human being. It really is. You ever think about that? A horse could be born on Tuesday and run in the Kentucky Derby on Thursday. <laughs> a dog can be born and in two years is fully grown and starts to get old. A human being grows for 18, now 26, now 30 some odd years before they're really an adult. I mean, it's hard, but you got to do it because we're not, we're not, gonna be able to survive if we lose the next generation ladies and gentlemen we can't be apathetic number six commitment to repentance and confession you know first john at 1-8-9 can i tell you one of the ways that that parents exacerbate ex exhaust sorry exhaust their children is by acting like they've never made a mistake what david could have done here what david could have done with amnon is said amnon i see what you're doing with your sister and i'm telling you i've been down this road and it's, it's going to lead to disaster but he doesn't he's apathetic and even after it happened, he could, have, he could have told Tamar, I'm so sorry. He could have reached out to her. He could have reached out to Absalom. He could have reached out to Amnon. He could have tried to work for reconciliation, but he let his own sins, 
He let his own sins be his own problem, and he never. I don't know if I, I don't know if he let it be uh, hanging over his head, uh, and just assumed that this is just going to happen now, and he can do nothing about it. I don't know what it was what went on his head, but here's what I think helps good parents be better parents: is a willingness to admit when you make your own mistakes, so that your children so that your children can see you modeling biblical faith and practice. Number seven, finally, a commitment to grace and mercy. As, as parents, we have to have a ton of grace for our kids. You know, you know what drives more kids insane than anything? A perfectionist parent. A parent who never praises, never celebrates, and never rejoices over their kids' successes and never has grace and mercy for their kids' failures. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, Matthew 5, 7. If you're having impossible standards, if you're expecting your child to live up to some dream of yours that you missed out on, how many kids, how many young boys are forced to play hockey because dad blew out his knee in his junior year? How many kids are forced to get perfect straight A's because their parent, one of their parents got perfect straight A's? This is impossible standards. You have to let your children be children in some respects. Giving them the silent treatment, acting like children yourself because they're not living up to your expectations. This is how you destroy a child. This is how you become spiritually apathetic. And it is the problem with the human race that men particularly have been apathetic in these matters. The scripture says that while the serpent was talking to Eve, Adam was there the whole time. Because when she eats the apple or the fruit, whatever it is, it says that she gave some to the man who was with her. The whole time Eve and the serpent are having the conversation, there's Adam listening. What's he doing? He's being an apathetic husband not taking and ruling and having authority in the matters of godliness and righteousness. And it costs the human race untold suffering and harm. We cannot afford to be apathetic in the most sacred calling in the universe to be parents. David's sins came back to bite him for generations. And these texts, as I said before, we live in the tension of them. Warning of consequences and hope for God's healing and redemption. Maybe you've made some mistakes as a parent. Maybe what I just talked about just really pierced some of your hearts. Listen, it's not over. You're not, you're not done. God's not going to wipe you out the face of the earth. Learn, grow, get in the word develop, take responsibility. It's, 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 it's possible for God to turn it around now. I'm telling you, I've been, I've been at this a long time, guys, and I have seen God turn absolute disasters around to become beautiful, whole, healthy families. God is in the business of restoration. Listen to the scriptures for the warnings they give you and then follow them for the hope they give you that yes, even in spite of what's happened in the past, the best is yet to come. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Deep End. Hey, do me a favor, like, subscribe and click the notification bell on youtube.com slash TV. That's where we want you to go. Go to thedeepend.tv for new swag that's available right now. That's the episode, everybody. I am so glad that you were here. I'll see you in two Tuesdays on the deep end. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. The Deep End is brought to you by listeners and viewers just like you. Consider giving today. Hey, if you don't have a home church, come and check us out at one of our campuses. Visit waterschurch.org and you can find a time and location that fits your schedule. Tune in next week for The Deep End with Tim Hatch.